text is uh, from Acts 2. My notes are on this side, so I'm going to look at this side, actually, instead of going back here. Um, text from Acts 2 uh, will be in verse 36 through um, the end of the chapter. Uh, so as you turn there, or you look in your bulletins, I want to tell you about the assumptions that we're kind of preaching under and talking about tonight. Uh, there are two assumptions. The first is this, uh, that you've actually been here this semester, or you've been in church throughout your life, and at some point in time, you've heard that uh, God chose a people out of all the peoples in the world, and He tells us that story in the Old Testament. Uh, you've heard that uh, in the Old Testament, these people were consistently unfaithful uh, to God's call uh, to be a mission agency to the world. And yet, despite their consistent unfaithfulness, uh, God was faithful to them. He called them out of all the situations that they got themselves in uh, through their unfaithfulness. Uh, he protected them. He served as their provider and guide. Uh, and that ultimately he said, even though you're unfaithful, uh, I am going to bear the curse of your unfaithfulness. In fact, in Genesis 15, he, he makes an agreement with Abraham, the, the father of the Jewish people. Sorry, babe, don't let me forget that. Uh, <laughs> he, makes, he makes an agreement with the Jewish people. And, and what he does is uh, they tear apart these, these animals. Uh, they put each half on either side. And God says, I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people. Uh, and actually what we're going to do is I'm going to walk through here, walk through these two halves of animals to show you that if you break the curse, or if I, or excuse me, if you break the covenant, and if I break the covenant, I will become like these animals. Uh, and ultimately, that, that instance in the Old Testament is pointing forward to the ultimate symbol of God's faithfulness, where He actually comes to earth and bears the punishment for our sin, for our breaking of the covenant. So that's the first assumption we're kind of on tonight. The second one is that maybe, hopefully, you went to church this weekend. Uh, hopefully, you went and you heard, if you're at First Praise, you heard Sinclair give a great sermon on, uh, on why the resurrection really matters uh, but the point I want to make is this, and it's actually the point that Peter makes in his sermon right before this passage uh, that we're about to read. He says this, he, he takes examples from the Old Testament, he says, here's God promising uh, to come and be faithful to us, and then this man, Jesus, whom you crucified, is actually the fulfillment of that promise. That Jesus Christ, a Palestinian Jew, wandered around 2,000 years ago, and then went up on the cross for our sins. And then to validate the claim that he is the Son of God, he got out of the grave and started walking around talking to people. In fact, he appeared to like 500 people at one time, we know from Paul. Uh, so that's the presuppositions that we're kind of operating under tonight. Um, so with that, um, I want to read here about Peter's first kind of proclamation that Jesus, the Son of God, came here uh, to the earth. So read with me. He says this, Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they, and they is like the devout Jews that Peter is talking to at the time, some of the people probably who saw the crucifixion of Jesus, um, says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. 
And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And these souls devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Pray with me. Father God, we thank you for being here tonight with us. We thank you for the freedom uh, to meet here and worship and glorify you. I pray that your word would come out through your sinful vessel, Father, that I would not be in the way of what you would have these people to hear. Send your spirit to be in this place, Father, that you might move in our hearts. In your name, amen. I don't know how many of you uh, like those Pixar movies. I'm, a, I'm kind of a sucker for them myself. Uh, one of my favorites, actually, is Madagascar. I don't know if you've seen it. Getting some nods. Um, basically, if you haven't seen it, there's this group of animals that live in the zoo, New York City Zoo, to be exact, and, they're, uh, and they get out of their cave because one of the zebras is having like this existential crisis or something. And uh, so they get out of their cage, they're running around New York City, and, and eventually they get captured again by the zoo authorities. Uh, the zoo authorities kind of take their uh, escape to mean like, oh, they want to go out in the wild, they want to be free or something. So they pack up the animals and they ship them off to Africa uh, on this boat. Uh, so they get there, they're on the boat, and there's like this series of escapades involving like bloodthirsty penguins hijacking the ship, and like ultimately the boat uh, washes the, um, the boxes that the animals are in over the edge, uh, and the animals, they're like thinking they're going to San Diego Zoo, and they're thinking like these humans have a weird way of like getting us there, they're just being assumed, they're assuming that they're being transferred uh, to a zoo that's not in New York City. Uh, but as they're bobbing along in the ocean, eventually they wash up on the shore of an island, uh, Madagascar. Uh, but they don't know it. They still think they're in the zoo. So the way they act while they're on the island uh, is really indicative that their lives are built on the assumption that, hey, I'm, I'm at a zoo. Like, for instance, Alex, the lion, he's kind of their ringleader. He goes around asking all the animals, like, take me to the people. You know, he's like, take me to the people. I want my food. I want my cage. I want to know where I'm going to be doing my act. Uh, take me to the people. So finally, I'm going somewhere with this, I promise. Finally, they meet King Julian, king of the lemurs. Um, and Alex the lion's like, Julian, you know, take me to the people. And Julian's like, hey, man, we got the people. We got them up there. And so he points up in the sky, and there's a skeleton of, like, some parachutist hanging in the tree. And, like, this is Armageddon on Alex's world, right? He's, he's totally shocked. He's like, do you have any live people at this zoo? Like, what kind of zoo is this? Uh, and Julian says, he looks at him and says, if we had any people, live people walking around here, it wouldn't be the wild, would it? Uh, Alex is freaked out. He's like, the wild, like mud huts and, you know, you wipe with leaves and stuff. And Julian's like, who wipes? You know? He's like, okay, the bottom line is this. Here's where I'm going with this. Alex is living his life on the presupposition that he's in a zoo. And actually, King Julian breaks the hard news to him that the rules have completely changed. All the assumptions that Alex made about his 
primacy in the zoo kingdom are actually totally unfounded. Uh, and he's going to have to get used to a new set of rules, a new set of circumstances. Uh, his rules have completely changed. And that is actually exactly what's going on in this passage right here. The Jews uh, that crucified Jesus not so long ago are sitting here patting themselves on the back. They're like, yeah, we, we just crucified a heretic. Uh, the, the Son of God, whatever, he's claiming that. Uh, that makes him a heretic. So we crucified him. We did the right thing. And Peter is here proclaiming, no, 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 this man that you crucified was actually the Son of God. He was Lord. He was King. Uh, and therefore, the rules that you've been playing by since you crucified him are completely different. You've been kind of living on borrowed time. And uh, so what does it say about him? It says they were cut to the heart. And basically what they want to know then is what do we do? What do we do with this new truth that we have to base our life upon now? Actually, I didn't crucify a heretic and a criminal. Actually, I'm not this just, righteous, religious person. Actually, I'm a murderer. I murdered the Son of God. What should I do? And Peter's basic point is this. Uh, He's got three things that he says to them that uh, they should do now. Uh, The first thing is this. He says, since Jesus is your Lord, uh, this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. He says, since Jesus is your Lord, he says, repent. He says, repent. Now, the question is, uh, that word gets like thrown around a lot in our kind of Christian circles. And uh, I hope it does anyways, like at your church or whatever. Um, But the question is, like, it's kind of a loaded term if you grew up in the church. And it's also kind of a difficult term to to understand if... um, you, are, you haven't grown up in the church and don't have that kind of background. So I want to kind of define for you what repentance is. Uh, some old white guys a long time ago, Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, came up with a definition. I think it works now. Um, it says, when a sinner, this is repentance, this is what repentance is. It says, when a sinner, out of the sight and sense, not only of the danger, but also of the filthiness and odiousness of his own sin, as contrary to the holy and righteous law of God, And upon the apprehension of his mercy in Christ, to such as are penitent, so grieves for and hates his sin as to turn from them all unto God, purposing and endeavoring to walk with him in all the ways of his commandments. All right, total mouthful. What does that mean? Uh, There are a couple things that kind of characterize repentance, um, which is a necessary condition if you're living your life on the idea that Jesus is Lord. One of the things that characterizes repentance uh, is, the, is the motivation for it. It's the motivation for getting rid of your sin and turning to uh, righteousness. See, the motivation uh, that's actually here in this passage, these, the Jews aren't saying like, brothers, what shall we do? Because they recognize that God's about to like judge them or something. Okay, because, And we know that because it says uh, they were cut to the heart. Their hearts were cut. They recognized that what they had done was filthy in the sight of God. It was contrary to His perfect and righteous law. Uh, So they were motivated by not a fear of like consequences, not trying to get away from the consequences of what they'd done, but actually they were motivated by an actual like understanding that sin itself is filthy, that sin itself is dirty. Uh, To illustrate this for you, uh, when I was in like 6th and 7th grade, I had this huge problem with lying. And I, I mean, that's so lame. Like, who, who struggles with that? We all struggle with, like, cool sins now. Like, I would, like, lie to my, my parents all the time. I would get in the car after class and, uh, you know, from middle school because I wasn't driving at that point because I was in middle school and that makes sense. 
Um, I would get in the car with my mom. She'd ask me all these questions. Do you have any homework? Did you get any grades back? Whatever. I say, no, nah, mom, no, nah, I didn't get any, get any grades back. Uh, and then come semester, it's kind of judgment day, right? End of the semester, I'm getting my report card. Uh, so always, right before I hand her the report card, I go, hey, mom, I'm sorry. I told you some lies. I'm going to admit. Uh, I did get some grades back, and some of them weren't good. Uh, I was not motivated out of a disgust for lying to confess to my mom. In fact, I was just motivated so that when she sees the C's or D's on my report card, uh, I'll be in less trouble. So that's the first thing that kind of characterizes uh, repentance. It's motivated by disgust for sin. Um, in some senses, this is why it's kind of ridiculous for Christians to think that we can like go to church or do some religious activity uh, in order to get ourselves straight with God. Um, because then it becomes really clear that we're actually just trying to scrub away our guilt. Uh, we're trying to get out from under the consequences. We're trying to use Jesus as a get-out-of-jail-free card. Uh, and the bottom line is we're not motivated by a disgust at our own sin. So the first thing that characterizes repentance is a disgust at sin. The second thing, uh, repentance then is naturally characterized by turning from unrighteousness to righteousness. What does this mean? Uh, you haven't really repented of your sin. You haven't really begun to put it in your past unless you have like, begun to hate what you did. And when you begin to hate what you do, you're naturally going to like stop doing it. <laughs> it's going to be like this kind of thing where you turn to good things. Uh, an example of this, uh, maybe make it more clear. I had this dog named Dakota, which is a black lab. Um, and she was not really repentant for disobeying us. And I'll tell you how I know that. It's because she was constantly getting out of the fence. She was getting out of the fence. Uh, we didn't know how she was doing it. It took us a long time to figure out. Ultimately, we realized she's jumping over the fence. So we beat her a bunch and like put up an electric like, wire. So, um, we explained why we were doing it. Uh, we put up a wire. We put up a wire on the top of the fence that would shock her uh, if she tried to go over. Uh, and so she stopped jumping over the fence. But she didn't stop getting out of the yard. And ultimately what she did, we came back out there one day after school and there's a giant hole under there. Dakota was not sad about the direction that she was going. She was not sad about her destination. She wasn't sad that she violated our laws. She was actually just didn't want to jump over the fence and get shocked anymore. So basically we killed a bunch of squirrels for no reason. But, um, and for some of us, this actually kind of rings really true practically. Uh, we have these sins that we think are better than other sins. And so we'll actually use these things that aren't so bad as coping mechanisms for worse sins. Uh, the temptation, I think, for guys sometimes is like, okay, I don't want to make out with my girlfriend, so I'm just going to go sit inside and play video games all the time. You know what I'm saying? I want to do something to keep myself from making out with my girlfriend. And so it's not that I'm going to turn to righteousness. It's not that I'm going to go begin to love purity in relationships. It's not that I'm going to begin to think, how can I act towards this girl that is holy and pure? But instead, I'm seeking to turn to another sin to kind of get away from that. And that's, bottom line is, that's not the fruit necessarily of a repentant heart. Um, for girls, like another thing maybe, uh, I don't know why we always split it up into genders, but I'm going with it. Um, girls, it's like, it's, the bottom line is, it's not good to like stop wearing all like the low cut stuff. You know, or the short skirts or whatever. I don't know, whatever y'all wear nowadays to get guys. But like, but it's not good enough to stop doing that 
and then continue with every word and every thought and every expression on your face to communicate uh, that you would like to have a relationship with them. The bottom line is you can't turn from one bad sin to some smaller sin. That's not how repentance works. Uh, hopefully those uh, examples kind of hit home. The bottom line is this, like repenting of sin is hard. Uh, in Romans 6, Paul compares it to crucifying the old man. What he's actually saying is, you've got to come along and say, Jesus is Lord. His commandments, His precepts, His teaching are right. And therefore, I am not Lord. And I have to become more like Him. The bottom line is, that's going to be difficult because we can't trust ourselves. And actually, what we end up doing is nailing our old self to the cross, putting our old desires to death because we have this new truth that we're founding our lives and precepts on. Uh, so it's, it actually a lot of times feels like death. It feels like being united with Christ in death to put aside the things that we used to love uh, because of the new truth introduced to us, which is that Jesus is Lord. So that's the first thing uh, Paul says to the Jews. Since Jesus is Lord, uh, you must repent. The second thing he says is uh, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. A crucial thing here is, uh, I guess, what is baptism? There's a lot of viewpoints out there, and I'm not going to really delve into it that deeply or go through all the arguments. Uh, But the bottom line is this. In the Old Testament, God gave His people a sign. It was a sign that uh, we would know uh, that we were one of His people, that He had actually put His mark on us. And it was a sign that He was going to be faithful to us. Uh, He actually gave it to Abraham, the father of Israel. And it wasn't that if you got this sign of circumcision, it wasn't that you were saved. It it didn't mean that uh, you were going to heaven, uh, that you were a faithful person, even that you were a Christian necessarily. In fact, Elijah, one of his prophets, uh, one of God's prophets comes along at one point in time and says, basically says, there's all these circumcised people running around here, and I feel like I'm the only faithful person left in all of your chosen people. Um, So clearly he's saying, like, uh, circumcision is not the thing that saves you. Uh, And in the same token, I don't think that he's saying, like, baptism here saves you. But what we do know is that baptism is actually kind of the correlating sign in the New Testament. It's a sign given by God to man showing that he is faithful to us and that we are one of his people here on earth. Uh, The bottom line is this. When Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, what he's saying is, join my people. Join the group of people that I have made a covenant with on this earth, that I have promised to be faithful to, that I'm going to use as my mission agency to help redeem the world. He's saying, join the church. So the question is, like, what does that mean? Does that mean, like, you got to go to first pres and, like, get on the membership rolls or whatever now? Um, I'm not sure that that's what it means. Um, But I think joining the church does have a couple of uh, tangible results if we're going to join it. It, What it doesn't mean is uh, just saying, okay, I'm a believer. I'm just kind of technically part of the church now. I'm part of God's body here on earth or whatever. Uh, It does have some tangible kind of characteristics. One of those characteristics of joining the church is uh, maybe serving it. Maybe serving it is a characteristic of joining the church. 
Uh, a lot of times uh, we have the sense that the church exists to kind of serve us free meals, uh, that the church exists to take care of us and our spiritual needs, and that is true to some extent. But the bottom line is uh, James seems to think it's pretty important when he says uh, true religion is this, getting to know orphans and widows in their affliction. Um, he seems to be placing a pretty powerful uh, implication that uh, joining the church also equals serving. And in fact, you know that, that Paul says when you join the church, you're like one of many uh, body parts. You're part of the body of Christ. And so I think maybe an accurate illustration of it is you can be like a hand putting a bandage on the rest of the body. Even though this problem exists in your church uh, today, the, the response is not necessarily complaining about it. And the response is, response is not necessarily to leave the church. But instead, maybe the response is to use your hand, your skills, your attributes and your traits to actually put a bandage on that wound in the church. Um, so one of the things that uh, joining the church is characterized by is, is serving it. The other thing I think maybe is, uh, can be, or two things that can be grouped into one is uh, sit under the teaching of the church and submit to its authority. If we're assuming that we have to repent of, uh, of our sins, if we're assuming that our thoughts and our emotions uh, and the things that we do are actually not all-knowing and all-powerful, and that if actually Jesus is God uh, and not ourselves, then we're actually going to need help in this work of repentance. We're going to need other people to show us, like in this case, man, you're thinking about this tenet of the faith the wrong way. Or your life actually is corrupt here and you don't realize it because you're fallen. Uh, So the bottom line is we need people to teach us from God's Word. We need them. Um, The bottom line is uh, if our our standard for what is righteous uh, is fallen, then we need the Bible and we need people helping us to understand. I I mean, I don't know about you. Second Chronicles, mystery to me. Don't know anything about it. What's this redemptive purpose? I need someone to explain that to me uh, so that I can go about the work of repentance because the bottom line is Jesus is Lord and I am not Uh, another thing maybe to think about here is that when you're thinking about serving the church and sitting under its authority and submitting to its teaching sometimes these two things can kind of go hand in hand Um, actually this weekend I had the opportunity to go with Emma to uh, her grandma's nursing home and I was thinking when I went up there, like, okay, I'm going to go, you know, serve the church. I'm going to go visit some orphans and widows, or what, mostly widows, not many orphans in nur- uh, nursing home. But, um, like old people? Okay, um, anyways, we're going to, to serve a bunch of widows, right? And we're getting here, and we're going down, and we're walking to the, this room, actually one of her grandma's friends, that's actually as far away from the dining room as you can get uh, in this nursing home. Uh, and to get there, it's actually on the therapy ward. So you got to weave in and out of these, uh, these uh, wheelchairs and people, 70, 75-year-old, kind of slumped over, doing, you know, kind of vegetative or whatever, and uh, nobody's talking everything. We get down to this room, the last room on the hall, and the woman in there is named Unita Lee, and that's classic. Might date her a little bit. She's 95 years old. Uh, And she's clacking around on her walker. Like, she's the only person actually walking on this hall. And so I'm thinking, you know, I'm going to be here to, 
uh, give you some conversation, make you not feel as lonely. We get to talking, and I'm asking her, why are you clacking around? You want me to push you somewhere? You want to, I can push if you want. I'm serving. And she says, she looks at me and says, I'm going to walk even if I don't want to. And even if it's uncomfortable. Because the bottom line is, if I stop walking, I know I'll never walk again. And eventually, I'm going to die. The bottom line is this. Yunita uh, was ministering to me when I thought I was serving her. And that's a valuable lesson to take home. I think a lot of times we as youth have this perception in our heads that we have nothing to learn from old people. They're behind the times. They can't use the internet, whatever. Uh, They don't know anything. And that kind of plays out in that we don't seek out relationships with them. We don't don't seek out relationships with them. Uh, So it kind of comes out that we don't value that. Uh, We might sit there, even if we think like, okay, knowing old people might kind of be good for me, we kind of sit there and wait for them to to come and talk to us. But the bottom line is we don't seek out that relationship with them. We don't seek out being ministered to by older people in the church. Um, So the bottom line is this. uh, There's a lot of guys out there thinking they're serving the church. It's actually the church serving them uh, when we're hanging out with these old people. So uh, since Jesus is Lord, uh, since He's our King, we're called to like join His country, and that country is the church. Uh, and so, and that's what Peter's really saying here: repent and be baptized. The last thing is this, um, and you'll notice there's something different about this point than there are about the others. Um, Peter, they say, "Brothers, what shall we do?" And Peter said to them. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. He says, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In other words, he's saying, uh, since Jesus is Lord, and since you recognize that now, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we don't know much about that in reform circles. We, like It's like, Holy Spirit, or something. Like Everybody kind of whispers the word. Um, but the bottom line is this, we don't have a good understanding of his purpose or what he's here for. Um, the Holy Spirit, as it says in Ephesians, says we're sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. He's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. In other words, the Holy Spirit comes and helps us call Jesus Lord. He helps us repent of our sins. He makes us want to serve and join the church. Uh, and basically that means that uh, he's proof that our faith will stand the test of time until we acquire possession of our inheritance in heaven. Uh, the Holy Spirit is God giving you the power to repent, to call Jesus Lord. His Holy Spirit, in other words, brings you faith. A lot of times we sit there and think about this and it's like, okay, I prayed to Jesus, now where's the Holy Spirit? Where's the warm, fuzzy feelings? Isn't that like an emotion I should be having right now? Um... So I guess we don't really know what it looks like sometimes to receive the Holy Spirit. Now, I was thinking about this uh, personally from my life. Like, uh, when we get frustrated with our own sinfulness, when we get frustrated with our inability to fix ourselves and change, uh, God actually says that that's the moment. That's His Holy Spirit working in you. Because, like, the bottom line is, at the beginning of this, we thought, like, okay... We're going to go, we're here repenting, right? We're nailing our old self to the cross. We're doing all these difficult things uh, and hoping that it'll be good enough for God. That's kind of what it feels like sometimes. 
uh, to nail ourselves to the cross. And what we don't realize is that actually all along, it was the Holy Spirit there doing it for us, making us do it. Um, it's like it's a great thing for a God who loves us so much. But the bottom line is, when we think we're doing this difficult thing, trying to uphold this awful command to repent, like repent of all the things that I like to do, which are so bad sometimes, which is so contrary to the law of God. Um, he's telling me to repent, but then the whole time he's giving me the power to do it. He's giving me the power to repent by virtue of sending his Holy Spirit. Uh, a lot of times I think like maybe uh, like we don't want to give up some sinful relationship that we've got going. Uh, we've got our hands like wrapped onto this, uh, you know, this guy or this girl that's going to make us happy. And we don't want to give it up. Or, uh, we don't want to be. We don't want to give up being lazy uh, at class or work. We just love apathy. Is the bottom line. Uh, sometimes the spirit coming and breaking into your life may just look like you believing, like truly believing. I can't change. It might look might look like you saying to God, "I can't change myself," but then saying also to Him, "But Lord, Your Spirit can. Your Spirit does have the power." To change me. It can actually make me let go of this thing that I'm holding so tightly. Uh, and then sometimes, or every time when the Spirit comes to us, uh, it might look like us going out and trying to live for Him. So we can then say, like with Paul, uh, he says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God through His Holy Spirit that now works through you. That's what he's saying there. He's saying that when you go out and put your salvation to work, when you put your faith to work, when you try for Him, that is evidence that the Holy Spirit is working inside of you. And I want to offer up this encouragement uh, to us who are struggling uh, so passionately and and difficult with sin, or people who feel apathetic uh, about their sin, who don't feel like joining the war with God against the flesh. I want to offer up this, that our God loved you so much that He spent his, sent His Spirit to make you realize the unrighteousness of your actions, to make you realize you, you are unrighteous. Uh, and He sent His Spirit before you had any thought or inclination uh, to love Him, to love God. He sent Him and He called you out of the darkness. Uh, and that's really the encouragement that we have. There's no other solution, there's no other religion, there's no other system of belief that can testify to the fact that God actually does our repenting for us. He bears the curse of our, self, or of our breaking the covenant with Him. And then He comes down Himself and does it for us. He makes us repent. He helps us to uphold uh, the laws that He gives us. Uh, and ultimately what He does is He makes us begin to love righteousness. He makes us begin to love righteousness. So that at that point, we're no longer... Uh, just kind of forcing our body to not do these things. But in actuality, we are beginning to love doing good things. We're beginning to love pursuing Him. My question for us tonight is this. I'll close with it. Is the Spirit calling you to repentance? Is the Spirit moving in you? Is He making you kind of frustrated with your inability to change, with your inability to do good, with your inability to be good? Are you frustrated because you don't even want to be good? And you're sitting here thinking, God, I really don't want to change this. I really don't want to give this thing up that I'm holding on to.
uh, I would encourage you to go down on your knees and cry out to Him and say, Father, afflict me. Uh, help me to realize uh, the unrighteousness of myself and my actions and help me to realize Your perfect righteousness. Uh, and then He has promised uh, that He will send His Spirit to empower you to fulfill His law and to seek after Him, to seek after His Son. Uh, let's pray that that would be so and true for all of us tonight.